Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to There's No Business Like. I'm Katie Miller at the Midland Center for the Arts, and I am here today with the rest of the pod squad, Danielle. Oh, hi. It's Danielle from the Alden in McLean, Virginia. Brian. Hi, Katie. Brian Zomer from KU Presents in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. Kevin. Hello, Katie. Kevin Maynard from Quad City Arts, splitting the border between Iowa and Illinois. And Josh. Hey, y'all. Josh Benson in Marion, Illinois at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Well, welcome back, everybody. I am so excited for our conversation today with our friend and guest, Pam Komar of the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust. Um, Before we get into that conversation today, had a question for everyone that relates to what you're going to hear Pam and I chat about. Um, So we learned some really really interesting things about Pam, uh, including some of the things she does to relax and disconnect from work um, and take a little bit of a break. So I was wondering, the same of all of you, what is a hobby or way you relax and disconnect from work that might be a little unexpected for you? I don't have many hobbies, and so it's not probably going to be unexpected, but I like to play my guitar and try to come up with some new songs. So that's my hobby. And Brian, what is your musical styling? Oh, it's all over the map, which is something that I enjoy. I'm glad I'm not in a band where I'm kind of pigeonholed in a certain genre because it depends on what I feel that day. I like that. For me, I really I really enjoy working out. It honestly centers me in a way. It gives me a peace and a break. And, you know, as opposed to most people, I, I listen to musical theater while I run and work out what's like the big pump up broadway song josh well that's the thing is i I just like the story as a distraction while i'm running doing stuff that i hate (laughs) um and so come from away is always a go-to waitress is a go-to hamilton yeah nice all three top of my list i would listen to those while i work out too love it danielle what about you whenever we can my favorite thing to do that like really disconnects um, is to go scuba diving. And we're not like certified. We always go and just do the class and, and do like the easy way out where like they fill up your tanks for you. You get all the gear. You just walk onto a boat and then eventually they say, okay, jump in. It's like a very soothing thing for me because I can just sort of be able to like tap into that yoga style breathing and just stay down there forever. Because once I'm in there, it's just like, whoa, like this is this is peaceful. And it's like your breathing slows down. And it's just like everything is so exciting. And yeah, you can't think about anything else while you're like holding a sea cucumber. (laughs) I love that. And I did not know about your scuba diving habit, Danielle. So thanks for sharing. I don't know that I have anything that's really unexpected for especially for people who listen to this, but I enjoy working out. I like to run. (laughs) And that's the other one. I I do like to run because it just it gives me time to, you know, think and sort of space out, you know, sort of get all my nervous energy out the other things that i like to do to you know would be like play uh, tabletop board games like those kind of things love that um i would say two things for me i love when i have the chance is to take a magazine and go to my favorite coffee shop and turn off my phone and just sit and read a magazine for 45 minutes and then the other thing i really love to do is actually winter hiking uh, so i got really into winter hiking when i lived up in traverse city and it's put on your boots and take the dog and and go out hiking there's something really different and peaceful about going when it's cold and when you have to like crunch through the snow, it's just a really different experience. Um, I don't get to do it as much as I would like now that we're in Midland, but that is something I really grew to love. And having lived really in winter climates my entire life and done 
downhill skiing and cross country skiing and things like that. I transitioned that into winter hiking and I really love that. And it's a really good and healthy thing for me too. And it's really hard to like be on your phone when you're trying to like climb through snow drifts. So this relates directly to our conversation with Pam and I really hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Pam Komar. I'm the director of programming for the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pam, it is so wonderful to have you with us today on There's No Business Like. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's just dive right in. You have been at the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust for how many years? Oh, this is my 21st season. Wow. Congratulations. Let's talk about your origin story. What was your moment of inspiration of Spark getting into the art? And then how did you end up at the Cultural Trust? I've been in the arts my whole life. I was fortunate to grow up in a family that really believed in the arts. I'm a Jersey girl, so my parents lived right outside of Midtown Manhattan in northern New Jersey. I studied dance and piano as a kid. My dad worked in the city when we were little, and my sister and I were dragged into the city too many times to count. My first Broadway show was seeing Peter Pan. With wait, wait with who? Oh, Sandy Duncan. Okay. I was gonna say who was who was Peter? <laughs> it was incredible. It was incredible. And so I don't have one specific moment, but it was a childhood just rich in cultural diversity. There was so much art, so many activities. Um, we are not good people at sitting still. My family does not stop moving. So so not one moment in particular, but raised in, in really a foundation of the arts. Grew to love it, really grew to enjoy as a patron, but also my undergrad is in marketing. I went to my advisor in school. Uh, I went to Bloomsburg University for undergrad and I said, I need to do something else. I don't want to be at a desk all the time. Here's my story. And he was like, I have the place for you. And he sent me down the street to the Bloomsburg Theater Ensemble. I stayed at the, with the organization for the next two years and was a marketing intern and learned all the back of house adventures and projects. That was how it began. I really learned how to not be the artist on stage, but to be there supporting and creating and curating. That's amazing that a professor said, oh, I've got the thing for you and transitioned you so quickly into that arts administration role because we have found through conversations with colleagues, like not a lot of high school, college age students knew what arts administration was. That wasn't a path that they were really set on until later in life. So what an amazing experience to have somebody like push you there right away. Yes. And I felt at home right away. I felt like, oh, these are my people. <laughs> I know how to speak these languages. You know, I didn't know how to market shows, but I, I of course, learned that over the years. And I departed for a little bit. I went into healthcare marketing for a little while in grad school in Cincinnati at Xavier University, studied international business. After working kind of on the corporate side for a few years um, and going through that master's program, I was fascinated by international business. When I landed back in Pittsburgh, um, I was here a little bit right after undergrad and went to grad school and then came back. I was committed to not going back to a corporate job. What at the time was called the Pittsburgh International Children's Theater was looking for a marketing director. I um, was lucky enough to get that role. That organization wasn't part of the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust yet. It was its own 501c3. 
the international programming aspect is what drew me in um, that, you know, they were working with artists from all over the world. Those kind of worlds came together for me when I moved to Pittsburgh. You started there um, with the Children's Festival uh, tw- 23 years ago. So wow. it was really exciting. A way to integrate that business world with the yeah, arts absolutely. and those interests for me. So yeah, kind of a long story, but... <laughs> No, it's great how those how you've been able to utilize all of those different skill sets and parts of your education starting in international like presenting international children's work. That's fascinating. And so then how did you transition from that into your role with the cultural trust? Because I know you manage many different programming aspects for the trust. So why don't we talk a little bit about your transition there and then all of the programming that you manage and oversee? The Children's Theater was its own 501c3. Um, It was created in Pittsburgh, really in a grassroots way. There were families living in the suburbs in the late 60s who realized, oh, we moved to the suburbs. What, What did we do? They looked to create and bring artists to their community. So, of course, I wasn't around them, but they did an amazing job at figuring out the arts world as as moms. Basically, the organization just grew from there. They added on a children's festival, you know, as they started to travel and see the world and see what was out there in other communities, they were really inspired. And so then the children's festival began. It's honestly my favorite project that I work on. The organization continued under my direction for five years as an independent 501c3. And then I had a baby who's now a senior in high school. This is ridiculous. Wow. Oh, congratulations. Um, <laughs> that has got to be like a very exciting, but also very sad at the same time as a, yes. as a mom too. I can just only imagine. Bittersweet, bittersweet. But he's, you know, he's a great kid. He's also grown up in the arts. Ironically, hates it right now. <laughs> He'll come back. He'll come back around. We might've overdone it for that child. <laughs> but I was I was done. The organization wasn't sustainable in, in that way. Mm. Um, and what I discovered was that all of the other children's festivals were part of a larger arts center or arts organization, both in the States as well as abroad. Everyone wasn't asking their partners or their family or their board for a donation to sustain the organization and cover any funding gap for the year. They had more of a safety net under them. This was really a great project to figure out how do you make the organizational organization sustainable. And I credit my board to that because they really pushed me to find a solution and said, well, if you can't sustain it, who can and or how, how can that happen? Through that process, I discovered that there were three other women, three moms who were never on the payroll, who worked more than full time. They weren't reflected in any of the board notes and any of the minutes. Their names were dropped here and there, but they I didn't understand the volume of free work that they were giving and donating of their time just because they were passionate. So it was really like a light bulb that was like, oh my gosh, this isn't sustainable. There's no way we can raise the money for another three full-time salaries that never really existed. Mm -hmm. We always use the venues that the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust owns and operates. And we would present shows downtown in the cultural district and then take the shows out to the suburbs. So that was kind of the growth trajectory after that beginning of just being in the suburbs where we started. And so the Cultural Trust was a logical partner. The organization is enormous. The mission of the organization centers around a 14 block area. So unlike a traditional art center where you're all in one connected building with multiple spaces or you're just one theater, the trust is both an arts organization and sort of an urban redevelopment authority. 
it was a great fit for us because we always had a kind of unwritten, friendly, non-compete agreement where we were in charge as the children's theater and the children's festival of the more mission-based artistic work. And the trust brought in the commercial shows. And so it was a logical fit. It took about a year, a little over a year to figure out where we landed and fit in that organization. We joined the, the trust as in 2008 as a division of. My position grew from there. So the first few seasons was just continuing to manage the children's programming and curate the children's programming and figure out what else, <laughs> what goes away, what stays. And I gradually took on more and more responsibility and became in charge of the Dettons, Cohen and Grigsby Trust Presents series, which are short-term engagements, all genres. Um, it's a huge volume of programming. It's about 20 or so shows each year. And um, I still direct the children's series. I added the Bridge Theater series. So the children's series is for younger kids and the bridge focuses on middle grade kids. So like think ages seven, seven and up. I focus on some of our music partnerships with local promoters, national promoters, our local radio stations. So it's an interesting mix, mix of programming. It's really diverse. <laughs> And it's been exciting to learn, to learn and grow at this this organization that's so vibrant and so responsible for such a large landmass. The rumor is that we're the largest landmass of arts curation in the country. Wow. You know, 14 blocks is a, is a big district, um, encompassing everything from theaters to black boxes, meeting spaces, parking garages, arts galleries, parklets and plazas and fountains. So it's a it's a really vibrant and interesting community. And I'm, I'm so proud to be a part of it. That is amazing. Wow. I'm going to ask you about programming here in a second. Yeah. But just for a little bit of context, can you give us a little bit more background on the Cultural Trust? And why does it encompass all these different spaces? And are the organizations that are a part, are they independent 501c3s and they pay to use the spaces? Like, how does that all work? And then how do your programs that you're overseeing fit into that puzzle as well? Pittsburgh Cultural Trust was started by Jack Hines and his band of dreamers, as they were called. In 1984, they got together to establish a cultural district. There were so many theaters in Pittsburgh. Not all of them were, were kept and saved. Some of them were lost over the years. A lot of them started as movie theaters, then became vaudeville houses, and then became adult cinemas. Where the cultural district is located in downtown Pittsburgh, PA, it was the red light district. There was a convention center on one side. There was Heinz Hall, which is the home of the Pittsburgh Symphony on the other side. And all the blocks in between were a place that no one really wanted to go. And so it was through this vision of restoring that and using the arts as the catalyst to do that. That was so brilliant. Really combined that arts world with a community to both live and play in and work in you know, not make donations and ticket sales the only funding stream. So things like parking garages, space that's leased out helps to become another revenue stream for that whole downtown district. It's, it's really like a quilt put to get pieced together of so many different entities and organizations with the Cultural Trust acting as the anchor for that that organization. We do the programming in lots of the venues, but we also have resident companies um, like Pittsburgh Ballet Theater. We have the Civic Light Opera and the Pittsburgh Opera. 
as three of the resident companies. There's also smaller arts groups like Arcade Comedy Theater, Bricolage Theater, and others that really started um, in the cultural district because they were given space and because they were helped with subsidy and with with support. It's it's really exciting. There's also the real estate arm of the trust that owns and operates the theaters, but all of these other buildings and galleries and as I mentioned, parking garages. It's a big, it's a big vibrant place. And it was the arts that helped make that neighborhood desirable again and helped incentivize and inspire other businesses. So there are many restaurants um, and little boutiques and shops in between and lots of space to still grow. It's an ever ongoing project. You know, there's room for everyone, it seems. You know, it's a really welcoming place with so much different Uh, art on offer and outdoor programming, public art, theater, dance, music. It's really diverse. So we like to say something for everyone. (laughs) It's, I mean, it sounds like a dream. Like it's honestly, like when you talk about like economic redevelopment and cultural impact and bringing people together and having that vibrant community, like it sounds like a dream. Um, I can just imagine that so many other communities want or envision the same thing, but it's difficult to get there because like you said, they need the support, they need the infrastructure, the subsidies, the funding to even like envision what that could look like. So what sort of both kind of on two sides of it, cultural impact and then economic impact has the trust had because of this very integrated model? The economic impact in particular um, is estimated over $350 million of additional revenue a year outside of the arts. So that's through all of the hotels in the district, the the restaurants, boutiques. Um, So that's that's really a lot. Yeah, (laughs) Um, a lot. In a small city, the Part of that revitalization also was environmental impact too. You know, mm-hmm. Pittsburgh was a, is the steel city, but really was a steel city and was, you know, in addition to all of the adult things on offer way back when it was sooty, it was gritty, it was dirty, you couldn't breathe, people were sick. So that helped a lot too, you know, to revitalize, not just like what you saw and experienced, but what your body experienced as oh, well. Yeah, I'm sure reclaiming spaces, right? And creating green spaces and open spaces and shifting some of that industry away from industry and into other other spaces definitely helps with that. Yes, it's, you know, it's really exciting. It's really a, a different model. You know, the organization looked to Cleveland um, to Playhouse Square when all of this was happening. They were kind of going through a similar process and that was really a big inspiration of, oh, hey, we can do that too and do it in our own way. It's a great place. I love Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> And so then how does the programming, all of these festivals and programming series that you do, how does that fit into this massive quilt of arts and culture entities? There's four curators um, at the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust. There's a visual arts curator um, who's in charge of the galleries and public art. There is our director of the Three Rivers, the Dollar Bank Three Rivers Arts Festival and the First Night Pittsburgh, Highmark First Night Pittsburgh. So she focuses on those two festivals. We have a, cur- a dance curator who also works on special projects. And then there's me. So kind of the rest other than Broadway is me and my team trying to figure out what we're going to bring to Pittsburgh each year, how we can schedule ourselves and all of the different spaces within the other arts organizations that are in the community as well. Um, so how do we make sure we're not stepping on anyone's toes? Pittsburgh's a very friendly city in terms of, you know, letting the people who are doing what they do best do that and fill in 
figuring out where you can fill in and where you can, you know, create mm-hmm. your own space and not step on, on toes. That's, that's also a lovely environment to work in where it's so um, collaborative and kind. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's really exciting. And we, we try to partner with all of those other arts organizations as much as possible, not just by making sure they have space or but maybe co-presenting with mm-hmm. them as well. If there's something that we saw or something they want to do that they don't have enough space or resources to achieve on their own. So it's it's really collaborative and exciting. So four main voices um, curating all of the work that we present on our own or that we coordinate um, and co-present with other artists and, and commercial promoters. So Pam, let's talk a little bit about these programming lines that you oversee. So is there a lot of crossover in terms of the programming that you're doing? Are you looking at the same audiences, different audiences? You know, who are you trying to serve through these different programming areas? We are looking right now, in fact, at that at the data. Our new president and CEO, Kendra Ingram, is all about numbers. And so we are confirming some of the things that we've thought we've known for a long time and also learning a lot of new things about ourselves as well. I've always said that the children's theater is an excellent entry point either into the arts for the first time or back to the arts for adults once you have kids. Those numbers are telling us that. They are saying that Families are coming together. The families are, the adults maybe are coming back. They're attending Broadway. After that initial entry point into, into children's theater, they're going to a dance council shows to see contemporary dance. They also run a magic venue. And those are kind of the buckets of programs that they're going to once they have an experience at the children's theater. And so I have so many questions about that data and we're just in the middle of it. Which Broadway shows are they seeing? Which dance council shows are they attending? Which magician caught their eye? And so we do try to create that crossover and we're working on creating more and more crossover between the different programming lines and the different brands. You know, someone subscribes to Broadway, but what what else would they come to? And you know, what does that data say in their profile? Like, what would they like next? And how do we either bring an artist that speaks to that or tell those those folks about what else is on offer in a digestible way that it rises to the top for them? And so it's really an interesting time of just really dissecting and learning more about our community, what they want to see or what they could be encouraged to see you know, to gain everybody's attention. Everybody's so busy. It's so hard sometimes to rise to the top. And we all know it's easier to sit on your couch and watch a movie, but we want, this is it. This is real life. We want people to come and meet their neighbors and experience the arts together as a community. So lots of crossover between those lines. It's really great to have confirmation on that and to learn some of those new new techniques and new ways that we can serve people. And um, inspire them through the arts. The children's programming in particular is really my my biggest passion. I love presenting work for young audiences and for their adults. Mm-hmm. I try as hard as I can to bring really multi-layered um, performances to, to Pittsburgh. What I mean by that is that the adults aren't bored. They're not just sitting there watching the show through their kids' eyes and like looking at their watch or their phone and, you know, waiting for it to be over and, you know, checking that box that they're they're, they're also being entertained and inspired and engaged by the performance as well. So it's it's something that I believe is a facet of key of ch- good theater for young audiences. It's my favorite programming to work on. Doesn't mean I don't love the other artists and what, the other aspects of my job, but right. th- it's really magical. 
I mean, there is something special about theater for young audiences and family programming and that experience. And our listeners will know it's a particular passion of mine, but I think it is great to hear the perspective and the data to back it up that it really does help build audiences in other way. And that having that access point in that experience is bringing people into other genres and into other opportunities. Like that is one of the key arguments for having robust youth and family programming is because you're creating patrons, you're expanding your patron base with every year of families that you can bring into your spaces for that programming. Absolutely. You need someone to introduce you to it or, you know, some some known entity that gets you to go for the first time, some sort of some sort of entry point and inspiration. It's exciting to help make that happen. So, Pam, you've been doing programming for about 20 years now. So if you look back to like really when you started, do you see any shifts or growth in yourself in terms of philosophy or how you go about the work of building programming for the cultural trust, because you're working in many venues, you're obviously working on many series. What kind of growth or changes do you see in yourself and like how you do that work over the last 20 years? It's been a great ride. (laughs) I really benefited from an amazing mentor. Moran Welch is the woman who started the Children's Festival. She was still really engaged when I first started she told me the whole process of travel was like another graduate degree. And so we traveled the world together. I learned so much attending other people's festivals, visiting other communities, talking to others, whether they're artists or community members or other presenters or agents and managers. You know, I always like to travel, but to combine the art with travel and to make it part of the experience and part of the growth has been incredible. I still do that to this day. I still am fortunate that I have a travel budget and I I try to see as many of the performances as I can in person with live audiences and experience it before I'm deciding what is right for Pittsburgh. You know, Pittsburgh is a, you know, mid-sized city, still a little bit conservative and I approach each season looking at what could we bring? Who's touring? Who's out there? Who have I seen that I can inspire to come to the States and help lead a tour, help lead the visa applications? We often act as an agent in that sense, especially for children's theater and for international companies and kind of being the instigator of folks who artists who don't have representation in the States, you know, helping them figure that out and, and make that tour happen in order to get the work to be seen. So it's really like a puzzle each year. There's no specific boxes to check, if you will. It's it's looking at what's available. What did we present in the past? What did we, what should we be bringing in the future? You know, how, how many of those shows, but no set like line to like cross and be like, oh, we're finished. <laughs> Maybe from a budget standpoint, that's it. Like when I run out of money, it's like, oh no, I did it again. Yeah. <laughs> But it's re- it's really diverse. And with being the, the cultural center of the, the Pittsburgh region, I have to look across the whole community and who's here, who's living here, who hasn't come to the theater in a, in a while? How do we bring them back? What do we put on offer? Um, so it's kind of a, a never ending puzzle. And then fitting that in around the resident companies and the availability in the rooms mm-hmm. and directing programming to other festivals that I'm not in charge of or other programming lines that I'm not in charge of and trying to inspire colleagues as well 
to take some of the shows that I'm either out of money or I have no space in my own programming <laughs> for. So I'm a very good shopper, very good at spending money. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I, I love the collaborative nature of that. The programs you're in charge of are different in nature, right? So you really get to, like you said, shop around and like bring in a lot of different things. So then how do you make final decisions in terms of what the tenor of each of those seasons is going gonna, is gonna to be? Are you looking at themes? Are you looking at diversity of stories that you're telling? Are you just looking at my audience has really shifted and I need to serve a new audience? Or is that kind of a combination of all of those things? Yeah, the programming mix is a combination of things for us. It's looking at the genres. It's looking at the age range for shows, um, the type of audience um, that they uh, will attract or should attract, which venues we're using. So the size and the scale of the work, the cost is, is a factor too. What can we price it at? How much does it have to be subsidized or sponsored to, to come close to breaking even? Could it make money? Can it be in one of the commercial offerings? Yeah, and we're, we've started a new process as well where we're looking at all of those shows for each season beyond the curatorial aspect and working more closely and collaboratively with colleagues within the organization. So before we submit an offer, we're now talking more than ever before with our finance team, with our marketing team, and with our ticketing team to have everybody weigh in and provide data and comparable shows that maybe they could choose a different show to compare it to in terms of past performance and past behavior of that particular audience. And it's become more of a collaborative discussion. So it's slowing down the process a little bit of confirming shows, <laughs> but it's been amazing to have that interaction with my colleagues looking even deeper at each of these performances before we're making decisions. And so that's a big change. That's a big change since our new president joined us. I didn't welcome it in the beginning and I've definitely grown in that process. And it's been, it's been really a great learning experience and um, I think is going to change what we're doing even more in the future. Was there a reason that the organization wasn't having those wide conversations previously? And what was the advent for that change within the organization? Yeah, so the organization was always collaborative, but maybe a little bit more siloed before in the past. And now under Kendra Ingram's um, leadership and direction, there's much more cross-departmental projects that are happening. And there's, there's much more weigh-in and collaborative decision-making, which is really inspiring and informative, you know, breaking down some of those barriers that may have existed to really look at the, the numbers and the data, also to, to make it more informed, like each of the decisions is more informed, but it's also not then marketing pointing their finger and saying, well, this show was never going to sell or programming saying, well, the marketing was terrible. So really approaching it more of a whole on a holistic basis. I don't, I don't really know why it wasn't done before. You know, it's all those different perspectives and why it's important to see change in an organization and mm -hmm. to keep trying to do things differently uh, while listening to what the audiences want or need in your community. So it, we're in a really exciting, exciting moment um, here in Pittsburgh. Wow, that's amazing. So you have seen 20 years of this organization. So I'm curious, how have you handled 
changes in leadership, changes in staff, changes in philosophy over the course of your time with the cultural trust, because I'm sure you have seen a lot of it. So for you personally, how do you deal with navigating change? There are lots of personalities in the arts. We know this as arts people. <laughs> and that can sometimes be difficult when people come and go in philosophies change and policies and procedure changes over the course of time. Change is always, always a thing, right? It's something that we have to get comfortable with in all parts of our lives, especially, especially at work. And being part of the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust after being on our own for so many years is really important. It really strengthened the organization and brought a lot more expertise to the organization and really helped not just on a financial basis, but on a staffing basis as well. So I have so many more colleagues now. There's so many more voices helping and influencing the programming um, and helping to make, make it happen. So we were a really teeny tiny staff before of two and a half people before the merger with the trust. And so we were doing a ridiculous amount of programming for such a small group. And we had contractors and, and kind of seasonal folks that came in and helped with the Children's Festival, for example. But the day-to-day -day staff were two and a half people running everything. And so that's been a huge change and a welcome one. We personally, you know, I, I'm also a yoga and mindfulness instructor. So that wellness factor is something that I try to maintain in my daily life personally. Uh, in addition to teaching, and I try to bring that to the office as well. Um, my colleague and I, we lead mindfulness sessions four days a week for the staff. And so from 8.45 to 8.55, you can jump on Zoom with us and experience some breath work, experience some mindfulness. We started that coming back out of the pandemic as a way to help everyone ground themselves and stay a little bit more sane in such a busy mm, environment. Wow. You know, in the arts, we're working all kinds of hours and each day is different. It's almost like shift work or really long shifts some days where yes. you're at the, the venue for 12 plus hours a day just to make it happen. And so it's really important to find, I believe, a, a really good work-life balance and that you are really unplugging when you're supposed to and taking taking all of your vacation time, all of your comp time. If you get such such luxuries, I think it's I think it's really important and it, it's not always easy, right? Putting down all of the things that happen at work and being present for your partner, your family and your friends, whomever you're spending your free, your free time with. And so I think that that wellness journey has really helped me become a better person and to, to sustain over time. Doesn't mean I don't struggle and fall off of that path from time to time, but I try my best to, to stay there and to make sure yeah. I can show up for my colleagues, as well as for my family. So bouncing off of that, when in your career did you realize that that was something, maybe a shift you needed to make and you needed to do more wellness or self-care or start setting those boundaries? And then what practical steps did you take to actually make that happen? Because I think we can talk about it all day long, but then it's taking that step forward and actually saying like, I'm turning off the email notifications so they don't come to my phone after 5 p.m. So when did you realize that? And then what practical steps did you take and what sort of advice do you have, especially for young people coming in the field now that feel the weight of like having to do everything all at one time, but are also looking for that like separation? 
Yeah, I think I think it's important to to carve out that time. I got more into wellness when I lived in Cincinnati and I worked at the Children's Hospital and was in grad school there. They started offering yoga in one of the conference rooms. A colleague was like, you should come. And I was like, I don't need that. Um, even though I studied dance and love to move my body, yeah. like I was like, what are we doing? And completely fell in love with it. And the people around me noticed, noticed that I was more sane. I wasn't so stressed out. Um, it was, it was a, a visible change. And so then I had a practice, you know, I practiced for a really long time before I decided to go and do my teacher training. And so I did that in one of the calm moments of the pandemic, I went to Cape Cod and I lived on the beach and studied with a group of other women and really dug into it and did a few trainings online as well. I, it's, it's important. I, I noticed the difference. The people around me noticed the difference. I think whatever that thing is for you that allows you to unplug, allows your mind to fully focus on something else. I'm also a big adventure sports person. I love to ski. I love to mountain bike. And for me, it's some of those like dangerous, semi-dangerous activities <laughs> that turn my brain off from all the work stuff and allow, you know, you have to focus when you're on skis or you're going to break yourself. <laughs> and those, those kind of shifts, whether it's yoga, like something really gentle and passive like yoga, or it's, you know, careening down a mountain at an obscene speed that, that helped me kind of balance those, those worlds of, of disconnecting and stepping away and refocusing on capturing that personal time and not wasting it, worrying about tomorrow's show, worrying about something that happened at work. So I think it's really important to find those things that speak to you. It doesn't have to be yoga or, or an extreme sport, but what are those things that you know, maybe it's it's not seeing as much art yourself. You know, sometimes as as arts presenters, we go and we sit in the theater and we start critiquing the room or the sound or the instrument or the, the, the art on stage, even though that's not our job in that moment is to analyze that work and decide if it's right for your community or for your space. So maybe it's something a little bit a little bit different. And it's okay. It's okay to turn off your instant notifications. It's okay to go and do your own things on your own time. You know, people know how to get in touch with you. The people that like, if there really is a true emergency, they know your phone number and they will yeah. put you down and find you and ask the questions. Like if they really can't answer <laughs> it without you. If you're a good leader, I feel like you've trained your staff too and empowered them to make decisions if you do step away and you are out of the office that you you know you trust those folks and they feel empowered and enabled and skilled enough to make those decisions without you and that even if it's you know doesn't go exactly how you would have done it yourself it's a teaching moment when you get back to the office after you've been away you know to kindly and and discuss what could have been done differently um, so I think that that respect and that trust is is super important as a leader for your team. You know, people people are smart and hopefully you surround yourself with with capable and inspired people and you give them the space and don't micromanage them or let them micromanage you. You know, <laughs> sometimes it happens the other way. <laughs> I love that. I That is wonderful wisdom right there, Pam. So thank you for sharing that. And I feel you in the getting out of the space and getting into your body more and doing more physical activity. I just, there is that mind body connection that I think more people are coming back to and finding. And I love the encouragement to get out and like do stuff that's good for all of you and not just always focusing in on the work. I love that so much. 
All right. So Pam, I know you listen to the pod, so you might be expecting this, but maybe not. Some people forget about this. Brian gave me his time machine. He actually trusts me with the time machine. He does not trust Kevin and Danielle, but he trusts me with the time machine because I am a responsible podcast team member. So I want to take you in the time machine and I want to go back to when you were in that moment with your board with the children's festival and going, is this sustainable or not? And realizing that you had moms that were giving you lots of free unpaid labor. What was that moment like for you? And what was like the greatest challenge of that moment? And what do you know now that you wish you had known then? It's an excellent, excellent question. I love the time machine. (laughs) I, I feel a little bit sad for those women, you know, that they weren't recognized for all of that work that they were done, that they became so anonymous. And I, I wish that, you know, once I found out what they did, I, you know, I thank them profusely, the ones that were still around, some of them had passed away, but I, I think it's important to recognize people and the people that are around you. I wish that the organization knew that, you know, knew that then um, and, and gave those women ongoing credit that it may be even if they were thanked in the moment that that was appreciated and recognized sooner and that it wasn't something that was like hidden, so to speak, and had to be rediscovered. I, you know, that that process of being empowered to say, well, h- how? How could you, how would you fix it? And going through that process of what could be different and what could make this, bu- this business, even though it's a nonprofit, like what can make this sustainable and successful in a long-term way where you're not totally crushing your staff and relying on volunteers, that it, there is more of a balance. And so it was that process that helped us discover that, that how, how to do that and how to be more kind and sustainable and not burn everybody out. Pam, I have so loved talking with you today. It's been so great knowing more about your work with the Cultural Trust and your history and your programming philosophy. But we have one last question for you today. What do you love most about working in the industry now? We've been through so many changes. You've had such a long, wonderful career. But what is about what is it about today that you love most? I love that we are back open. I love that I'm able to travel again and see and interact with all of these different artists all around the world. I, w- I believe I went into a little bit of withdrawal um, during the pandemic in terms of my own personal arts consumption. I'm fortunate to see, you know, well over a hundred shows a year and to, wow. to not do that all of a sudden was, was really difficult. So being open again and seeing everyone experience and come back to the spaces and to be able to, to get back into that process of that curation and that travel and that discovery and that network, it fills my soul. So I'm so glad that we're all open and back and serving the artists and the audiences as best as we can. Snaps there. I would agree with you. It's great to be back. Pam, thank you so much for spending time with us today. It has been such a joy talking with you. Thank you for sharing all of your wisdom and insight. Thanks for just all of your work and making this industry even better. Thank you. Same to you. (laughs) I Absolutely love everything about the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust and the way that they've completely revitalized a section of the city centered around the arts. And it's it's just so refreshing to see how successful that is as a model for the rest of the country. Yeah, and especially talking about the environmental impact that that has had on um, the, the area downtown of just like 
revitalizing what's already there. I have to say, I don't know much about the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust either, because to me, it's very much like Kevin and the Quad City Arts organization. You know, they do so much and it's just more than my brain can understand and comprehend. But I enjoy getting to work with Pam on the PA Presenters Board. And I learned a lot from your conversation, Katie, that even after all these years of working with Pam on that board that I didn't know. So it was really great to hear more about the program that she does and her approach. And I particularly like the part where she talked about them breaking down the silos and and how it was kind of a struggle at first to kind of do that change, not only brought down those silos, but it it saved time in some ways. She talks about how it takes longer, but it saved time probably in that she doesn't have to go back now and sell and pitch the show to her organization before they even sell it and pitch it to the public. Because now they all have buy-in, they all have understanding and like a, a deeper appreciation of what is being booked. And now that the whole team can help promote that show to the public as well. And it also, I think probably eliminate some of the internal bias that they may have before when it was just her or just the her program because now it's you know being looked at and, and analyzed in, in all these different uh, approaches yeah I think the interesting thing about that is it also probably I mean to me it seems something that would come from sort of a financial standpoint because once you have all of that buy-in obviously it makes it easier to market it makes it easier to sell so like the financials become you know a bit easier to to manage in that sense if, if everything is working cohesively the other thing I think is really cool about that is things that we talk about on the podcast all the time is that it brings different voices to the table, um, you know, different perspective, different things. I mean, obviously, Pam is is killing it in programming there, but having another perspective on some things really can can help because, I mean, we all know that you spend so much time in your program, like sometimes you can get a bit of a tunnel vision and having another perspective when they're looking at the marketing or just the box office feedback of that can help help break that down. So I think it's, it's smart and I'm sure it does take more time. Um, but I, if it's not paying dividends already, I imagine it soon will. Well, and we all know that the booking cycle is on top of the programming that's actively running. It's not like we have time to sit and be like, this is our planning period, right? So, you know, if you're in marketing or you're in box office, you're currently selling the season and you're interacting with the patrons and you're getting that real-time feedback. And if there are things that are relatable that you're looking at, or like things that are just like kind of a thorn in your side right now, you can give that feedback that the programmer just might not be aware of yet because, you know, they've been in, they've been doing their booking and they've just been in that like tunnel vision space. Knowing that Pam is a listener, this is my, I would like, I would like to ask her um, once they get done with the research they're doing about, you know, does the children's theater bridge their audience into um, other areas of their organization? Does it bring them to Broadway? Does it bring them to dance? I would love that data, um, an impact statement or something. Katie and I know that we see that and it happens and it's a great entry point for adults to get back into the theater and to see the children's theater can be really enjoyable for them too. You know, like hearing her talk about like, I know that this is a thing, but now we have data for it. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to find you, Pam. <laughs> <laughs> I would expand upon that and honestly invite Pam or anybody from the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust to come on and talk about that once they know more of that information. Because I thought that that was really fascinating because when I think about youth and family programming, I focus on like the impact to kids and the things it's doing for their, you know, mental health uh, in schools, all of that sort of thing. 
I never once thought about how it helps their parents get back into the arts as well. And that it encouraged their parents to go see other shows and sort of remind them of their love for the arts, or maybe just introduce them to a love for the arts, which I, I think is an incredible impact and something, like I said, that I didn't really consider. I know. I felt uh, slightly vindicated. <laughs> In that moment, Danielle, I expect you did too when we were when Pam and I were chatting about that. But to your point, Kevin, that is why I track the number of adults that attend our school matinee programs as well as the number of students. And I report those adult attendance numbers as well as the student attendance numbers because it's just as important that those adults are coming with students, seeing the impact and having that experience for themselves. Because if 50% of my students attending have never been to a live performing arts event, it's very likely that those adults that are attending with them have had similar non-experiences because they're living in the same communities. They have um, the same socioeconomic opportunities, that sort of thing. So I report those adult numbers as well as the student numbers because it's just as important to recognize that that's an entry point for adults, either for the first time ever or like Pam said, circling back and coming back into our spaces. And so I was like really happy to hear that. And Danielle, I'm equally as interested in the final report of that data um, once Pam has it. So yeah, Pam, we're coming back to you. Don't worry. I really enjoyed her talking about them focusing on mindfulness and they do those mindfulness Zoom things. And and it just sounds like such a healthy practice for your organization. And further for her to specifically talk about separating the professional and the personal life a little bit and making sure that she she does things for herself, fulfills both her professional life and her personal life. It, it was really, really inspiring to, to hear someone so accomplished really talk about how thoughtful she is about that. I agree. That was one of my favorite parts too, about turning work off when you have your personal time. And I Beyond that, I loved how she talked about not just trusting your team to del you know to delegate and trust your team when you're not there, but to also give them permission to fail. That was the big key thing that a lot of people don't do. Like some some organizations, the leaders will delegate or whatever, but if there's a problem, they're like, "I want you to call me right away," or you know, "Why didn't you call me?" or that sort of thing. And so the fact that you're not only giving permission but allowing them to fail, and then using it as a teaching moment instead of reprimanding them if something does go wrong, um, is really such an, a, an amazing like leadership style approach that I I really admire and and loved hearing that. And thinking about when we came back from the pandemic and reestablishing organizational culture, I think those are two really key things that I think some organizations have done really well on is empowering staff and really focusing on on well-being and some organizations haven't. And so I really um, enjoyed that part of the conversation too and walking away from that thinking about those two points in particular and how like they need to be embedded or those attitudes need to be really embedded in your organizational culture in order for them to be effective. I also appreciate her comment uh, about talking about experiencing art as a community and, you know, kind of sort of like coming to the theater as that community aspect. You know, when I was running the Orpheum Theater in Galesburg, one of the things that we always told you know, uh, the the students that would come and, and tour the theater is that we explained theater as being the first social network. Like it was the place that people came to see and be seen. Um, but it was also just a place where you got to connect with your community. So I, I love the idea of, you know, the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust sort of centering that notion in their business. Just going back to things that we want to, uh, you know, put a pin in to circle back with Pam. I would love to know more about the work that she's doing in bringing international artists that don't have representation in the U.S. here to tour, because I, 
I know that that's a huge lift. I honestly don't begin to really know how we do that. Like we rely so much. I personally rely so much on agents that specialize in that type of thing. And I know that I benefit from Pam's work as being, you know, not too far away um, from a routing perspective. So I am very grateful that she does that. But I think that there's a lot of haze around how that process actually happens and works. And we're able to get international artists that, you know, aren't formally represented here, you know, and I'm just having a realization of, of other things that I need to learn. So thank you. And not that I understand it, but I, I do know a lot of that goes to the travel budget that she talked about. And I'm so jealous of that. I wish that I can go and just scout shows on my own sometimes. I love working with the agents and going to conferences and seeing showcases and those sorts of things. But I would love to do the type of travel. I mean, this is a discussion that Michael Mashala had with me, too. And, and he encouraged me to do that. Unfortunately, I'm not allowed to do that. You know, my my employer will let me go to a conference and that's about it. So I, you know, I think that's a really great way that she approaches it though. Well, thank you everybody for contributing to the conversation today. I have found alongside Caroline Myers, somebody else I want to be when I grow up and her name is Pam Komar. So Pam, thank you so much for your time today. We so enjoyed learning more about you and the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust and everything you do for our industry. And we hope you'll join us again next time on There's No Business Like. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus ness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. But everyone else is live. Like, I don't understand why that's just happening with Kevin. (laughs) It's because he got that haircut. Could be. Yeah, you have a Jersey Shore filter. Wait, did Kevin get a haircut? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Kevin got a haircut. Yeah, like Pauly D from Jersey Shore. He went in and he's like, I want the Pauly D. Turn your head. Oh, is it? Oh, it is the Pauly D. It is the Pauly D. It is not the Pauly D. I mean... (laughs) I mean, it looks like it. I will quit this fucking podcast. <laughs> you didn't know who Pauly D was five minutes ago. Yeah, but now I've looked at him. Can't judge a book by a cover. He's a DJ. Oh, cool. What is it supposed to look like then? Because I'm assuming it's been slicked back by the headphones. <laughs> I think he looked good. Like, poor Kevin. Thanks, Brian. Uh, all y'all can fuck yourselves, except for Brian. <laughs> He's on the coolest. I will hang out with him in New York. <laughs> Brian, have you considered using that time machine to, you know, secure funding um, for something like that? <laughs> I mean, I understand. I mean, I, apparently, according to Katie, Danielle and I aren't allowed to use it. Uh, no, 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 I, no, 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 no. You and I are allowed to use it. <laughs> I thought about using that for that, but my ethical standards are too high, oh, so I, I wouldn't let myself do that. Oh, ours aren't. We're yeah. just going to go back and add a couple zeros to your budget. <laughs> Since we're kind of off the rails for the moment, I will also say that I do have to correct her about the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust thinking they have the largest footprint with 14 blocks because they must not know about Quad City Arts having 87 cities. So (laughs) it's good. It's a good point. It's a good point. I really should be the one uh, should be the one shaking my fist right now. So don't do that. You look very poly D like that. (laughs) 
T-shirt time. Gabs are here. I'm, I'm Polly D. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! I like that Brian and I, I have about I the can't. same like opinion or thought, like knowledge of Polly D. Because I feel like honestly, Josh and Danielle, like you could just throw out quotes and be like, "Yeah, that's probably what he said." I I don't know why the fuck T-shirt times a thing. <laughs> T-shirt time. It was a vibe. <laughs>